0: Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show, broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. I'm also the founder and director of the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which travels the country supporting local animal welfare groups after a New York City premiere every October, alongside my annual New York Cat Film Festival brought to you by Dr. Elsie's. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show was also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their cats. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, no hide, and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaran or Maisie will eat. Brian Patrick Duggan has... I would say, knocked it out of the ballpark. He He's written several books. He's such a dog man. A Saluki owner, but also an AKC judge, and he really knows dogs. But this book is something out of left field, and it, it hits you upside the head, and you're like, wow, horror dogs, man's best friend as movie monster. Brian, this is the most amazing book because – if anyone thinks horror dogs movie monster, they might think of Cujo, maybe Damien. I don't know. There's one or two. And you've written this extraordinary, scholarly but engaging book on so many dogs that are the bad guys in movies. And as you write so brilliantly in the book, quite differently than what we think we know or feel about dogs. There, we don't think of them as the as the satanic bad guy and yet you found a lot of movies where they were talk a little bit about this the creative spark because you are a scholar a, a pre, previously a professor but you're a very scholarly bent person you research things to the ends of the earth what was it that sparked your interest in the idea that there were movie monster dogs
1: yeah well uh, thank you tracy it's, it's a pleasure to be here as always and um well, uh, oddly enough, um, the genesis of horror dogs actually happened when I was writing my second book about General and Libby Custer and their yes. dogs. And one of the pieces that I included in that book was um, a, a short appendix about how motion pictures depict General Custer with dogs. And, you know, sometimes they don't do it at all, but sometimes they do And there's a few pictures that fairly depict his relationship with dogs. He and his wife are crazy dog people.
0: And by the way, can I just interject? That was a wonderful book. You came on the show to talk about it. If anyone's curious after this conversation to know more about – uh, Brian Patrick Duggan's writing and thinking and how he incorporates dogs in his huge historical context. That is a tremendously good book. And your book on Salukis was amazing. You've been on the show for your other books, and each one is just a, a, just a fountain of information and thought-provoking ideas. So I had to interrupt and say, you know, third time is, is the charm, but the, the first and second times were charming as well.
1: Well, thanks, Tracy. Um, You know, I I I consider myself a canine historian, so I'm always interested in in telling these stories that you know are are going to disappear if somebody doesn't you know put them down in writing. So, so back to the genesis of horror dogs. So, I was watching a lot of movies that had uh, 19th century army officers and forts and posts and to see if there were, you know, dogs at forts, you know, how was this represented? And in the process of doing that, I just started branching out and watching all kinds of movies. I started keeping an Excel spreadsheet of movies with dogs in them. And and what roles the dogs had in the film. Were they just there as window dressing? Did they show some sort of character attribute for one of the one of the actors? And there were two films that I saw that just gobsmacked me. Um one was Dracula's dog which is great fun and very hokey and the other one was Monster Dog and and I and I thought to myself wait a minute you know dogs have always been rintin tin yes. lassie yes. and asta and benji and stuff yes. like that in the movies when did we start making dogs into bad guys and so I started watching more movies and you know I watched the good the bad and the silly <laughs> and there were and you
0: know, by the, the way guys that's a, that's not the title of a movie but yeah. but, but but although it, it would be hilarious title for a movie i will say that that you just his, as a historian and as a researcher, have dug up the most amazing things going way back to the silent movies. And I'd say before, but of course, before the silent movies, there weren't movies. So do go on. But I just want to say that oh, what you found in the book, I mean, cinephiles will go mad for the book because it's a whole history of the film the film industry from the point of view of Dogs villainously appearing in movies, which is a heck of a strange and interesting way to look at the history of Hollywood, amongst other well, there's things.
1: This, there's, and there's, there's kind of an there's kind of a creep to this, where it starts off. Yes, you know, the very first horror dog we have in films is the Hound of the Bills, and it's not the 1939 version with Basil Rathbone, although that is good. It's the German version in 1914. And um, they used a Harlequin Great Dane. And to our eyes, it's not very scary today. But then filmmaking back then was different. And people were more susceptible to, you know, scares and chills in the theater than then uh, we, we're a little jaded now, but so that was the very first one. And then in 1921, there was another version. 1924, there was a version. 1927, there was a version. 1929, there was, there was an excellent version that was like at the height of, you know, German expressionism with, you know, mobile cameras and chiaroscuro lighting, you know, and a, and a really scary dog. And the first time you see a dog wearing a costume, he wears this kind of silvery jacket to make him look like a ghost as he's running across the moor. And the, they actually Film that in an empty Zeppelin hangar, and so it, it goes on from there. So as as the Hound of the baskerville starts to become you know Im- embedded in our, our movie memories, um, the first horror dogs that got cast were Great Danes. You know they're big dogs; um, they looked menacing, and usually these films were black and white. And you know, of course they have the pointy ears, give you this sort of reference to you know Satan or unholy animals, and and they look terrifying then you see things start to shift after world war ii when returning canine veterans come home from military service and there's this sort of public hysteria about these dogs turning and that's the phrase you hear all the time the dog's going to turn into a killer or he's going to revert to you know his military training and you know are these dogs safe well thousands of these dogs were actually rehomed uh, and adopted after they came back from the military not all of them saw combat service and there were a few incidents where dogs you know were legitimately spooked by something or other which the newspapers played up like crazy Hollywood was not slow to notice these things and they started making films where dogs and these were typically German shepherds at the time um, were portrayed as canine veterans returning home that were possibly a bad guy now in these movies there's the public suspicion that the dog is bad the dog has turned he's biting people and you don't know that the dog was abused by the bad guy before he bites him uh but all this plays out in the end the dogs all become rescuers and heroes but it plants that seed in the public's mind that there's something about these dogs and at this point it's german shepherds um that happens again in the lassie tv show where there were actually at least three episodes where war dogs or police dogs, uh, German Shepherds and one Doberman Pinscher, you know, were uh, turning on their owners for some mysterious reason. And, of course, in the Lassie TV shows, they always have a happy ending. So there's something that's not the dog's fault. But again, it plants the seed of suspicion. And, you know, the American public is watching Lassie every Sunday night, you know, all across the nation. Yep. So there's this there's this kind of creep in in terms also about this time of what American audiences and film censors will tolerate in motion pictures. And at first, you know, you don't see any blood. You don't see actually people being killed or anything like that. This starts to creep and it, it begins to get a little bit more liberal in terms of what's shown on tv alfred hitchcock with the birds and psycho is, is kind of part of that reason night of the living dead happens a, a lot of the social turmoil and and revolution in the 60s about you know what um the, the mistrust of the establishment starts to come into play and there start to be more movies where dogs are bad guys and this really burst forth and what I call the Doberman decade. So in the 1970s, there was something like 11 different films where Dobermans were bad guys, and uh, everything from Dracula's Dog to uh, the Doberman Gang. There were like three of those movies that they made, and and this is where you start to see dogs now are you know serious villains. This also comes into synchronization with the trend for animal horror. Uh, which begins in like 71 or 72 with the movie Willard. And there's a few, you know, films.
0: That was about rats, right? Was that about rats? That was about rats. I I just want to interrupt and say that, that the book itself is full of stills, stills from these films. You did so much deep digging. You thank the Academy of Motion Pictures and other entities for sharing their their files and their photos and their information with you, but you go so, into so much wonderful detail about as you're talking about now, social ideas about animals, social ideas about dogs, but then about how the films were made and how the dogs were, in in one case, people were loaning their fancy show Great Danes to the movies because everyone even then wanted to be associated with something glamorous and then they'd get back their dog and it would have been dyed another color to make it look more scary. It's wonderful that the anecdotal part of it, the, the, the fine details that you have in the book are so marvelous because, it, you know, we, we might know Beethoven or Snow Dogs or something. We know kind of modern movies where dogs are, or they're goofy or they're pet detectives or I don't know, lots of different things. But to look back at the history of the human-animal bond— as you talk about frequently in the book, and see this whole historical arc of where dogs came into movies and how that reflected, as you just said, you know, the social turmoil of the 60s, that's a a different... You have really an incredibly Mount Everest view of things, and it. I think it's fantastic to be able to read and think the way you do for us to read what you already think, which is to see things over a much longer timeline and much more globally and talk about things like the movie Psycho, which doesn't have animals in it, but it has scary horror, or Willard, which is rats run amok. It's it's really quite extraordinary. I, I do think the book is a real gift to movie lovers because it you have ideas and you've put ideas together that I don't think anybody else has ever thought. I mean, you just mentioned how many German Hound of Baskervilles were made, but in the book, you show with stills and description how many American and British versions were made. It's pretty fantastic to realize how, through your eyes, how seminal dogs were in the making of, I guess you could call them social myths, because we all think it's funny about Lassie, right? Lassie, Lassie, Timmy's down yeah. the well. Or maybe Lassie turns around and goes for your neck, depending on the, the, the era in which it's made, right?
1: Well, there actually is one film where Lassie causes a death on screen. And, 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 and if that case had been brought to a trial, if dogs were tried, um, she would have been uh, charged with manslaughter. Um, and, and so in the film, of course, it's justified, but Lassie deliberately herds a man off a cliff.
0: And you describe it so well when I'm thinking, oh yeah, I've seen that movie. No, I haven't. I read your book. You describe it so well. It's almost like, oh, I've already seen it. It's great.
1: Yeah. It's justified in the movie because the, the prospector that she herds off the cliff has tried to kill her. He killed her master. And so, you know, in, in terms of, you know, movie uh, justification and censorship and sort of, you know, good versus bad equilibrium, it's justified because the bad meet their desserts. But Lassie still kills somebody. Right. And that's that's kind of the glove starting to come off. in in terms of, you know, what filmmakers get away with now, filmmakers are very astute. They see what is successful in somebody's film. And they say, well, why don't we make one of those for us? And and then, you know, and we'll make money too. So, for instance, the film Dogs, which came out in 76, is about dogs going amuck in a California university town. And it's the first real massed animal or dog horror film um, in the modern era. And they basically were copying Jaws and the Birds. And, and, you know, there's actually quotes from the filmmaker saying, yeah, we're hoping it's going to be another Jaws. Well, it, it, it never quite went off as well as Jaws did. They didn't really make that much money. The film ended up, you know, basically in bankruptcy court and being sold off to pay their debts and things like that. But, you know, it established a number of things where, you know, naked woman is torn to pieces in her shower by a Doberman. You know, Hitchcock did it, you know, in Psycho with a butcher knife. So they, they ripped off a lot of this stuff. And it's kind of jokey and and horrible. It's not that great, but it, it paves the way for all these other films. With, hey, if that worked here, let's do this. You know, this with Jaws was successful. Let's make a Jaws film. Um and it's, it's so interesting to talk to the people who were on these, you know, and there are a number of the actors and producers and directors and crew still around that tell stories about working with the dogs on set. And, uh, you know, the little quirks they had to do, for instance, you know, there's Cujo is pretty well documented, but there's some really great stories about the uh, <clears throat> there's a, a very famous dog trainer who's passed away named Carl Lewis Miller. And Carl was the man who really figured out how to get Jekyll and Hyde performances out of movie dogs. And he was a, he was in the Air Force. He trained German shepherds at Vandenberg Air Force Air Force bases uh, to guard the missile silos, and he did, evolved this talent for dogs uh, into training dogs for Hollywood pictures and television. So w- he was hired to train the St. Bernard's for Cujo. And when I say St. Bernard's for Cujo, every film, even if it only has one dog in it, they've got at least two or three doubles. Right. Because the dog can't work. Dog can't work all day long. You know, the dog tires and burns out after a couple hours.
0: I just want to tell you, we only we only have one minute left. So you have to make the short version of this story. We have literally (laughs) one minute.
1: Okay. All right. So and this is this is kind of a fun thing. So Carl doesn't think he can get St. Bernard's to do all the vigorous action that the script calls for. So he wants to use Doberman's. Now, fortunately, the producer, the director, and Stephen King all said, no, it has to be St. Bernard's. So Carl went and then figured out how to get St. Bernard's to do all those things that are required in the book. And he's really a master of uh, getting dogs to do these performances on film. He did the Doberman movies and many others.
0: Oops, I just lost Brian on our connection. Well, there's only a few seconds left, so I just want to remind you that you've been listening to Brian Patrick Duggan talk about his really unique book, Horror Dogs, Man's Best Friend as Movie Monster, from the Dogs in Our World series of McFarland Publishers. It's amazing, just amazing ideas and photos and historical nuggets that will delight you all. I hope you enjoyed the show. There's a few more special companies that make the show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. I want to thank Wonderside, founded by a woman entrepreneur who discovered an effective natural way of using plant-powered products to repel fleas, ticks, and other parasites on our pets instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes it possible to protect your pets, children, and property without the chemicals that could be harmful to all of us. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer only to their own high standards. Finally, we're supported by Magic Fabric Pet Throws, developed by a husband-wife team whose expertise in the textile industry solved the problem of their big, hairy dog, Molly, who got on the couch in bed with them despite her wet fur, muddy paws, and shedding. Sound familiar? They created machine-washable Magic Fabric Pet Throws to trap pet hair, dirt, and moisture, letting you enjoy dog and cat cuddle time without sacrificing your clothes, furniture, or decor. You can buy direct from the creators at magicfabric.com.